I'll be reading today from Ephesians 5, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. And on the Pew Bible, it is page 1158. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something youthful, useful with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved and gave us gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Chris and Naomi, I uh, want to let you know we're grateful to have you guys as a part of our church, and it's really exciting to be able to support your parents as they go to Tanzania. So we're just grateful to have you and that you all could be with us this Sunday. Uh, let's bow our heads and, and pray before we get into this text today. <clears throat> Dear God, we thank you so much for your abundant grace. We praise you that we come here, Lord, and as we sang uh, this morning, we stand not condemned in light of the cross, in light of what you have done for us. And so, uh, God, we come here out of thankfulness. We come here to respond uh, to the love which you have initiated for us. And God, I pray that in that love, we would trust you. We would trust your word. We would trust what you have to say to us. And Lord, that we would uh, be brought into the life that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series on the book of Ephesians. Some of you may have thought that I had forgotten entirely about the book of Ephesians. Uh, we sort of took a break during the holidays to, to go through some other texts and look at some other things in relation to the holidays. Uh, but we're jumping right back into the book of Ephesians. And just as sort of a reminder, the book of Ephesians uh, was written by the Apostle Paul uh, probably 20 or 30 years after the time of Jesus, uh, so not that long after uh, Christ was on this earth, and, and the, the Christian church had started to emerge uh, throughout the area, and, and so he writes this letter to the churches, church churches in Ephesus. They were probably house churches meeting in, in various places, and he writes to uh, the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey on the, let's see, the west coast of Turkey. And so he's writing to the people living in that, uh, in that area 20, 30 years after the time of Jesus. And, and what we've seen as we've read through the book of Ephesians is we've seen that, uh, well, we, we've titled this series Reconciliation. And what we've seen is that one of the main themes of the book of Ephesians is that, is that Paul is laying out very centrally what God's plan and God's purpose is for this world, and his plan and his purpose is to bring reconciliation. God's ultimate plan, God's ultimate purpose is to make all things new, to bring 
to bring renewal into this world. As we look around at our world, we look at the global issues which we face, when we look at issues that our nation faces, when we look at issues that our local community faces, when we look at challenges that our families face, when we, when we look and we see the things that aren't right at all of these levels, and then especially when we stop and we look at our own lives, and we look at our own hearts and we see our own hearts aren't right, we see that God's ultimate plan and God's ultimate purpose is to make all things new. That this is why Jesus came, that through his death and through his resurrection, we see definitively that he loves us and that he has the power to make things new. That even when things seem completely out of control, we know that his ultimate purpose is to bring renewal and reconciliation into this world. And then what we have seen as we've moved forward is something that is almost as profound as that. Maybe not quite, I don't know how you could get more profound than that. Uh, But this is pretty profound, and that is that it seems that God's plan at this point here, in terms of bringing reconciliation, the means through which he seeks to bring reconciliation into this world, is through his people, is through his church, that, that as we become followers of Jesus, and as we invite him into our lives, that the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, more and more increasingly as we pursue him, becomes available to us and begins to change us and work in us in ways that allow us to be an extension of Jesus himself. That allow us to be an extension and to go out into our world and to bring reconciliation. And I want you to think about that for a moment, what that means for you. When you go to work on Monday morning, What is your ultimate goal, your ultimate purpose? It's to bring reconciliation and renewal into your world, into whatever situations you find yourself in. When you go to soccer practice uh, or to your kids' soccer games and you you intermingle with their parents and, and you start to build relationships, you see that your ultimate purpose is to be a means of healing and renewal and reconciliation into their lives. That as you uh, invite neighbors over to your house for barbecues or you go over to their house for barbecues, that that, that you see that you have this this incredible calling and purpose of, of being there for them, for being the means of renewal and reconciliation into this world. And so Paul, actually, what, what, what we, we see then is he sees this as being the primary purpose of the church. And so I, I guess even from a, a, more, a bigger perspective, the idea here is that when people on the outside, look inside the church, they get a glimpse of what it would look like for a world to be being reconciled. They get a glimpse. They say, what would it look like if our world was moving in the direction of reconciliation? What would that look like? And and the idea is that as they look into the church, they begin to see what that would look like. Not that the church is perfect, this is the point, that it's, it's a process that, that we're moving towards reconciliation and that at those on the outside, that they can look in and they say, well, this, this is how renewal and reconciliation is to take place. They get a glimpse of what, what that new world would be look like when they look at the church. And so we see that's Paul's big picture. Now, as we get to our passage here today, you see, now he's going to start to get a little bit more specific. Okay, well, what does this look like? What is it that we need to do? What, what do we need to embody? 
uh, if we are going to, to model reconciliation in this world, what, is it, what does it look like? And I think that if you take everything that is said in, in these verses here, you can sort of sum it up uh, with this one phrase. I think what Paul wants us to see is that the means by which we can bring re- reconciliation into this world is by building one another up with kindness. By building one another up with kindness. We see this this idea imagery of building, particularly in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. I think we also see it in in, in light of that. Verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Again, it's this idea of, of building up those who are in need building up those whose lives maybe are collapsing or have collapsed, this idea of, of building one another up. And I think if you pull all the things that he, together that he says here, we get this idea of building one another up with kindness. Uh, because what is kindness? Kindness, uh, it has been said that kindness is love in work clothes. Kindness is love in work clothes. Uh, love is a, is a beautiful idea, a beautiful thought, but when, when the rubber meets the road, when, when rubber, excuse me, when, the, when, the, when love, you know what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> I'm looking up like, I'm like, God help me figure out how to make this sentence work. So we have this idea of love, and, and when it becomes real, when it when actually loves people, it becomes kindness. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's love in action. Kindness is love in action. And I think that that's what we... We find here, I've entitled this, this sermon, Building with Kindness. Some of you may have heard the phrase, killing with kindness. To kill somebody with kindness. And uh, I, I, at first I was going to call it that, and then I went and thought about it a little bit more and looked into what that really means. To kill somebody with kindness is not actually a good thing. Uh, to kill somebody with kindness uh, is, is actually to sort of manipulate them. It's kind of a false sort of pseudo-kindness where you sort of well, you, you seem like you're being kind, sort of, but it's really just to kind of uh, get them to come around to your own agenda. Uh, the phrase was made popular by Shakespeare in The Taming of the Shrew, where Petruchio, and I think it's Kate, right? Okay, Petruchio and Kate, thank you. Our Shakespeare expert right here, Paul Seibert. Uh Petruchio, he's, he's trying to, to tame his wife. And so he's like, I'm going to kill her with kindness, now, his idea of killing her with kindness is like starving her, not giving her food, and locking her up, and doing all kinds of things like that. And so, obviously, that's not the same. That's manipulating people with kindness. That's not what Paul's talking about. So, we're not calling this killing with kindness. We're calling it building with kindness. The means through which we can bring reconciliation into this world is to build one another with kindness. And I think we see in this text three ways in which we're called to, to build one another with kindness. First of all, we build with kindness by inflating rather than deflating people with our words. By inflating, being inflators, not, not deflators. Uh, again, verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, right? Building them up, filling them up, inflating them with your words. Uh, you know, Words are incredibly powerful. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We all know that isn't true. 
that actually some of the deepest wounds, some of the wounds that can take the longest to heal, are not physical wounds, not wounds that were done, somebody harming you physically, but, but the words that came from somebody's mouth, sometimes the wounds that are caused by that can be much deeper, much harder than anything physical. So the power of words, and, and I think this makes sense within a biblical framework. The Bible talks about how we were created in the image of God. We were created in some sense to be like God in, in, in many ways. And what you discover also in Genesis, where it talks about that, is we discover that the way God brought things into existence was by speaking. That just by speaking, that there was power in his words. And, and there's a sense in which our own words, there's a power which we don't always understand what they can do. And so Paul's saying, you've got, you've got to be careful, you've got to, to build one another with kindness. Fill them up and inflate them with your words. Think about what you're saying. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. This word unwholesome in the original, it's a word that isn't usually used in this kind of context. It's a unique usage of this word in this kind of a context. So it's, it's a little bit unclear how one should translate this, but the context makes it very clear. Unwholesome talk is anything that doesn't build you up. Unwholesome talk is anything that deflates rather than inflates. Of course, unwholesome talk certainly includes, I think, things like foul language and, and cursing and, 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 and cussing and, and that sort of thing. That's certainly included here, and, and Paul's going to go on later in the passage and, and talk about obscenity and foolish talk and, and, and that, that kind of inappropriate language. So that's, that's certainly a, a part of it, but it's much bigger than that as well. It's much bigger than that. I think actually if we, if we simply see unwholesome talk as inappropriate language, cursing, swearing, or whatever, we think that's all it is, then we might be susceptible to straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. The point isn't that you shouldn't strain out the gnat. It's just that you shouldn't let your gnat straining be an excuse for camel swallowing. Here's what I mean by this. I think some people, particularly in a religious context, can sometimes have this attitude, well, as long as I don't cuss, as long as I don't use any inappropriate language, well, then I can say whatever I like. Right? What makes it unwholesome is if I use those words, but as long as I don't use those words, then I can say whatever I like. But I think we all know if we think about building up and tearing down, inflating and deflating, I think most of us will agree that some of the most deflating things that people have ever said to us did not use any sort of inappropriate language. Or to put it another way, I think we probably all know individuals who, who don't use inappropriate language ever. They never cuss, they never swear, they never do anything. But the reality is, when, oftentimes, when you get into conversations with them, by the end of it, you leave feeling deflated anyway. Whereas I, I actually have a number of friends who do cuss from time to time, but to be honest with you, when I'm around them, they tend to build me up and inflate me and lift me up. It's not that we shouldn't strain out the gnat. Of course we should. But we can't let straining out the nap be an excuse for, for camel swallowing because unwholesome talk, unwholesome talk is anything, anything that deflates rather than inflating. And so I think we've got to think critically, think seriously about the way that we use our words. We've got to ask ourselves questions like, do I tend to be overly critical? Do I tend to be overly critical of, of, of people and of things? Do I tend to just... 
Do I tend to be critical just, you know, without really even thinking about what the consequences might be? We have to ask ourselves, is it really necessary for me to say this? In the end, is this going to cause more harm than it is good? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves. Not, of course, that there isn't a place for uh, loving criticism. We're going to see this later. That's certainly important as well. But, but nonetheless, we have to ask ourselves in any given situation, is it really necessary for me to say this? We have to ask ourselves, do we tend to be overly critical? Do we tend to, uh, do we tend to overuse sarcasm? Right? You know, sarcasm, I think, is a little bit like, um, like seasonings for, uh, for food, spices, whatnot. You know, a, a little bit of sarcasm can add flavor to life. Am I right about this? I mean, I use sarcasm. It's fun, right? You know, a little bit brings flavor, and, and, and you know, sometimes you feel like the first time you, you know you're a friend with somebody is when one of you makes fun of the other person. That's like kind of like a, a rite of passage in a relationship. I mean, there's, a, there's something to a little bit of sarcasm. It's like that spice that can give flavor to, to food. But if you overdo the spice, it completely ruins the food. We've got to be really careful. I, I, I have a, a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, who told me years ago. I actually, I knew him before he and his wife came to this conclusion. And it was true. It was really fun to go to his house because they were really sarcastic and it was really funny. And they would kind of poke fun at each other and, and it was all in, in fun, right? And then he told me years later, he said, they came to this conclusion they had to completely get rid of sarcasm or it was going to destroy their marriage. No, they had to just completely get rid of it. You know, if you can't be responsible with your sarcasm, you just have to completely get rid of it, right? In, in moderation, if you can handle it in moderation, then use it. We've got to be careful because the things that we say, they can either inflate or, or deflate. So we have to ask ourselves, do I tend to be overly critical? Do I tend to maybe cross the line with regards to, to sarcasm? Do I have a tendency to gossip? Do I have a tendency to to talk about things, share business with people that, you know, there's really no need for them to know this. Maybe I even exaggerated a little bit. Or, I mean, do I just have that tendency? It's, it's thinking critically about how we use our words and realizing the power that they have. You know, what it means to build with kindness is to inflate rather than, than deflate. Now, of course, an important part of inflating actually is truth-telling. We see this in verse 25. Paul says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. When we talk about inflating one another with our words, we're not talking about hot air. Right? We're not talking about a hot air balloon, right? I mean, you know what it's like if you're around somebody. And it's like, I mean, they do just, they're just nice all the time. But there kind of comes this point where you're like, I don't really, do they really mean that? I mean, do they really think that? And then, and then all the things that they're saying kind of lose the impact that they have, right? Truthfulness is important for building trust. You have to know that, that they're being honest with you. Otherwise, the things that they're saying that seem to inflate, you start to wonder, do they really, do they really think that? Truthfulness is, is important for, for building trust. Now, of course, what's important about truth-telling, and, and this is where the gospel is so incredible, what's so important about truth-telling is that it must come within the context of grace. It must come within the context of grace. Truth without grace will not inflate. It will only deflate. 
but truth that, is, that comes within a context of grace, and grace is unconditional love, well, that's the kind of truth that can inflate. You know, if, if you have a friend, you have somebody who, who you know loves you. You know they really do have your best interest at heart. Then when they speak the truth to you, it's, you can, it's easier to take that. Because you know, you know that they really are, even if you disagree with them, you know they're, they want to build you up. They want to, they want to inflate you. Grace is so important as a context for, for establishing truth, and truth is important for establishing trust. And of course, it goes the other way as well with regards to grace. Grace is important for truth-telling. Not only do you need to expose somebody to grace before you tell them the truth, perhaps you know, address something that you see in their life, but we also need grace in order to speak truthfully about ourselves. A grace is the context in which You can speak honestly about yourself. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. I think Paul's probably also getting at this idea, you know, be honest about yourself. It's establishing a a community where you can be honest, you can express your failures, your sin, your your weaknesses, your all of that. And, and, And what makes it possible for you to share that is precisely that you have this incredibly strong foundation of grace. You know that the person whom you're going to say this to is not going to look down on you, is not going to judge you, that they're going to come alongside you and say, you know what, I, I'm just as susceptible to things, maybe not the same thing that you're susceptible to, but I'm susceptible to things too. That We have that context of grace, and it allows an entire environment where people can speak truthfully to one another. I think nothing can build somebody up more than the freedom to be able to confess what's going on in their lives. Of course, how do we do this? How do we be a community that is able to speak truthfully to one another within the context of grace? Well, of course, it all comes from realizing that this is precisely who God is. The God of Christianity is truth and grace, the full embodiment of it. In, in, in John, the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, he says that Jesus was full of truth and grace. Jesus was a man of truth. I mean, Jesus would call you out. Jesus calls you out. The Gospel calls you out. The Gospel comes and says, you are a sinner, every single one of you, and I will show you what that is if you will let me. I will tell the truth about you if you are open to that. And then when you come to see that, when you come to see that, then what you're also going to see is that I went to the cross to die for you. That I love you irrespective of that. I love you even though you did that, even though I know the truth about you more than anybody else. You get that? The the very one who knows the truth about you and your sin more than anybody is also the one who loves you more than anyone you could ever imagine. You see, and the more we get this, the more we realize that God is a God of truth and grace, then we're able to imitate him. Paul tells us to imitate Christ. He's saying, once, once that gets a hold of you, the more that becomes, you become aware of that, then you're able to embody this truth and grace, and then you're able to inflate rather than deflate. How, how do we build with kindness? We build with kindness by inflating rather than, than deflating. And secondly, we build with kindness by being givers rather than takers. 
We build with kindness by being givers rather than takers. Verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. Uh, It's interesting, there's a lot of discussion about why Paul highlights this. It seems, it's likely that, that in Ephesus, that a lot of, you know, pretty much early on, everybody who's coming into the church are new Christians. Pretty much everybody. And it seems that a lot of them may have come out of a background where stealing was just kind of how they lived. That's just how, that's how they got by in this world, right? And so think about that. I mean, this is, this is the early church. A ton of them are just stealing all the time. And, and this is the context in which, which Paul is, 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 is speaking to them. And so he's saying, okay, you know, you shouldn't steal, right? So here we go. Stealing is wrong. In case you didn't know this, uh, the Bible definitely says that stealing is wrong. But Paul takes it a lot deeper than that. He goes much farther than that. You see, Paul doesn't just say stealing is wrong. Uh, He doesn't just say you shouldn't steal because good people don't steal. It's much deeper than that. He says you shouldn't steal because what you should be doing instead of stealing is the very opposite of stealing. And do you know what the opposite of stealing is? Well, it's not not stealing. (laughs) The real opposite, I don't really know if that's true, that's whatever. The real opposite of stealing is giving. You notice this. He's saying the reason why you shouldn't steal is because stealing is the opposite of what you should be doing. What you should be doing is giving. You see, Paul, this is what I think is so interesting. He's not interested in just fairness. He's not saying you shouldn't steal because that's not fair. You shouldn't steal because that's not just. You see, he's taking this way way beyond justice and fairness. Paul is not saying that we as a community should simply embody justness and fairness. He's not saying that we should embody a fair society. He's saying we should embody a generous society. Well, you, just don't, you don't just steal. That's not fair. You shouldn't steal. No, it's much more than that. You shouldn't steal because what you should be doing is giving. He's not trying to create a fair and just society. He's trying to create a generous society. And to model that for our world. Think about that. Think about how that changes your whole reason for work, whole reason for your vocation. Think about that. It's, it's, it's not that I, I, I want to get a job or, or get a promotion just so that I can take care of myself and be responsible. It's much deeper than that. It's no, you should, you should seek to get a good job, seek to get that promotion, uh, seek to all of it, not, not so you can take care of yourself, but so that you can be generous to others. Imagine a culture, imagine an entire society where, where kids growing up and they're thinking about well, what are you going to be when you grow up and what kind of career do you want to pursue and, and they're all kind of figuring out what career they want to pursue and you ask, well, why are you doing this? And they say, well, the main reason I'm doing I'm not just doing this to care for myself. I want to get a good job. I want to do well so that I can be generous to other people so that I can give. Paul isn't calling us to model a just and fair society calling us to model a a generous society, to be givers, not takers. How do we bring reconciliation into this world? How do we build with kindness? First, by inflating rather than deflating with the things that we say. Then by being givers rather than takers. And finally, by being forgivers, not haters. By being forgivers, not haters. 
Verse 26 says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In your anger, do not sin. A couple of things emerge from this. First of all, it's clear here that that Paul sees a difference between anger at an emotional level and anger as an action. That, That he seems to see that there is an appropriate place for this emotion of anger, that there's an appropriate place for that. I think what further substantiates this is that when he says, uh, in your anger do not sin, he's quoting from Psalm 4. And if you read Psalm 4 in its entirety, what you discover it's a psalm about David where he's crying out for the injustice that has been done to him. He has been falsely accused. And so it seems, it's saying, okay, you've been falsely accused in the face of injustice, Anger is an appropriate emotion. That, that, of course, that makes sense. That if you've been treated unfairly, if you've been accused falsely, that, that, that emotion of anger, that's perfectly appropriate. But the question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with that anger? In your anger, do not sin. What do you do? Do you, do you deal with it or do you let it fester? Do you let it grow? Do you let it continue to work in you? I think we see that by the next line. It says, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. It's a way of saying you need to deal with your anger quickly. First, you need to internalize it. You need to not act out of it. But then you need to deal with it. And you need to deal with it quickly. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, notice here, it's not quite the same as saying that you shouldn't go to bed angry. Have you heard that phrase, you shouldn't go to bed angry? Um, And some people, they'll say that, you know, you shouldn't go to bed angry, and they'll use this verse as a way of substantiating that. Um, I'm not entirely sure that's really what this verse is is getting at. Uh, Well, for one thing, just to be honest, I don't know, certainly in my own life, and I think Laura would agree with this, sometimes if we get in an argument... uh, we don't get in an argument until after the sun's already gone down. Right? So technically, it wouldn't be until the next sunset. Right? Because that's actually what it says. Furthermore, if you actually look at Psalm 4.4, the verse that this comes from, what's interesting is that one way of reading Psalm 4.4 is it actually suggests that maybe going to bed angry isn't such a bad idea. Listen to what it says. It says, in your anger, do not sin. This is Psalm 4.4. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Suggesting, you know, maybe when you're angry, maybe the best thing to do is just go to bed. Uh, Maybe that's what's going to prevent you from sinning. I certainly know that this is sometimes the case for me. If I'm angry, sometimes I just need to go to bed. I I just need to sleep on it. Now, that's not the same as suppose you're in some sort of an argument with someone in your household, you like, you know, slamming the door and, and going to bed and that, giving them the silent treatment, right? That's, that's not the same. But this idea of, hey, you know what, I think I need to go to bed because this is not going to get any better, that, that, maybe, that's a, that, maybe that's actually a way of dealing with that, that anger. So I'm not sure when he says in your anger, or when he says do not let the sun go down on your anger, It's not necessarily saying that you shouldn't go to bed angry. That might actually not be a bad way of of initially dealing with your anger. What it's getting at, again, is that you've got to deal with that anger quickly. 
You've got to find a way to, to get rid of that, even justified emotional anger. You've got to find a way to get rid of it. Because if you don't, if you don't deal with it, well, then it, it's going to, well, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to give the devil a foothold. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. How do we give the devil a foothold? It's by not dealing with that anger and then allowing him to work that, to work that anger in you. And, and then I think as the devil works that anger in you, then we get to what he talks about in verse 31. Verse 31, this is what happens when you don't, when you don't deal with your anger quickly. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. See, that's what happens. That's the kind of person that you become when you don't deal with that anger. You become bitter, and then that bitterness just begins to affect everything that you say and everything that you do. You become a person of malice, saying things here and there that, that just kind of comes out of this anger that hasn't been dealt with. Even rage. Rage is something that, that I think ultimately comes from not dealing with your anger. We think of rage as something that just happens quickly. But I'm not sure that's really true. I think for most people, rage comes quickly, but it's actually because something has been building and building and building and building and building. And then that rage, it's the straw that broke the camel's back, but there's so much more, so much more underneath it. I mean, think of it this way. I don't think there are any, very many married couples who, you know, right after they get buried, are throwing dishes. Usually your dishes, most marriages, probably can last for the first year. The first couple of weeks anyways, Right? Because when you, when you first get married, you know, and, and, and your spouse does something that you, rubs you the wrong way or whatever, you, know, you just kind of let it go, right? But if you, if you don't deal with it, if all you do is internalize it instead of letting it go, getting rid of it, well, then it can build and build and build and build. And then several years later, you might be buying some new china. Because if you don't deal with that anger, then it leads to bitterness and, and to rage, so what do we have to do? We have to, we have to forgive. Forgiving is not the same as internalizing your anger. Forgiving and internalizing are not the same. I think sometimes we think that it is. That somebody does something that wrongs us and I don't say anything. We think that we've forgiven. No, you haven't necessarily forgiven. You've just internalized it. You know, they, they do something, you just kind of keep it to yourself. That's not the same as, as forgiveness. I think actually, particularly people within a religious environment, religious people tend to be pretty good at internalizing their anger. Internalizing your anger is, a, is it's an act of self-control, self-discipline. Religious people in general tend to be somewhat disciplined. And so, so we can be good at, at sort of internalizing it, Right? I don't, you know, I'm a good, morally upright person, so I'm going to keep this to myself. This is also why religious people can very easily be filled with bitterness, because they, they internalize it, but they're not actually dealing with it. Not actually letting it go. And so, then again, it turns to this bitterness or malice that just kind of leaks out in so many different ways, or ultimately can explode in rage, and then it just comes out, and people are like, where did that come from, right? I thought... And you can't just internalize it. You start there, right? In your anger, do not sin, right? Internalize it. But then don't let the sun go down on your anger. See, you've got to deal with it. You've got to forgive. 
You've got to let go of that. How do we forgive? How do we become forgivers and not haters? We become forgivers and not haters the more we come to realize that our God is a forgiver and not a hater. That our God has has every right to hate us. Ever thought about that? God has every right to hate us. When we come to understand true holiness, what it truly means to be a good person, we realize that none of us come anywhere close to that. We realize that God has a right to be angry at us. We deserve his anger. And yet he forgives. And yet he says, I, I'm just going to let that go. You see, the more that you get that, the more that you realize that God is a forgiver, not a hater, and the more you realize that that's the God that you need, boy, the more it's going to open up your ability to forgive others. You see, some of us, some of us are like the Pharisees, and we don't acknowledge or accept our sinfulness. That's what a Pharisee does. A Pharisee doesn't even see it. They don't even see their sin. And so when others sin against them, right, well, then they're good, you know, they internalize it and, they, and it, it kind of builds and, and they're, you know, but they, they can't forgive because they haven't made this connection. They don't see themselves at a heart level as being sinners. And so they just internalize it. And, and so they, they never, they don't, they don't even acknowledge their sin, let alone accept it. And then there's Judas. Judas acknowledged his sin. Judas, he was willing to acknowledge. He saw, yes, I did, I sinned. But here's the thing with Judas. He couldn't accept it. Like in his, in his own pride, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't accept it. He couldn't. He said, no, that's not who I am. But that is who I am. But that's not who I am. But that is who I am. But that's not who I am. You see, some of us are like Judas. Like, we know it. We, we know that we're sinners, but we can't accept that there's something in us that is not okay with that. You see, before you can actually experience the forgiveness of God, you have to be okay with the fact that you really are a sinner. You have to come to a place of being okay. In fact, spiritual growth, you see, sometimes, and this is interesting, spiritual growth, sometimes we think of it as being, well, no, I can't be okay with my sin because I've got to overcome it. I've got to overcome it. If I just become okay with it, then I'll become complacent, and I won't deal with it, so I can't be okay with my sin. Okay, that's sort of true on a certain level, but at an, actually at a deeper level, you have to be okay with the fact that you are sinful. You have to be okay with the fact that you can't get out of it, no matter how hard you try. Not only do you acknowledge it, but you, you accept it, and you become okay with the fact, okay, that is who I am, apart from the love of God apart from Christ. And then as you begin to place your hope and your worth in the cross, your identity in His love and in His forgiveness, His love of you, you see, then that frees you because now you've been forgiven. 
so you're able to forgive. See, people who aren't able to forgive others are usually people who can't forgive themselves either. Right? Because they haven't been able to accept that. They can't accept that is who I am. You accept that, then you're able to forgive because God has forgiven you, and that frees you up to forgive others. How do we build with kindness? We build with kindness by inflating rather than deflating others with the things that we say. We build with kindness by being givers rather than takers. And we build with kindness by being forgivers, not haters. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for your grace. Praise you for your truth. We praise you that you come to us in the fullness of both. That that is what can bring change, can bring hope, can bring life to us. God, I pray we would rest in that. I pray that we would rest in the kindness of our God. We would rest in the magnitude of your love. And Lord, that as we come to to chew on that, as we come to meditate on that, as we allow ourselves to be saturated in that truth, God, I pray that, that it would bring change. We know it's a process, Lord, but we pray that you would you would work that out in us, Lord. We pray that significant steps could even be taken this morning in terms of our own hearts. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.